Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Well, I think you're in a fucking semi-problematic bit, you know, uh, it just well, see, sounds like Harry is unironically... Uh, obviously uh, not true it is, Aaron. I know you, yeah. you have to be pretty quick to keep up with this, but... For those um, at home, Harry believes the things that he is Kinski or for uh, slavery. We're not, a, we're not fans of slavery here, but what, what this joke presupposes is maybe we are. You see? You we get are. It? Jason, could you we are not, out, please? We are not fans <laughs> of slavery. Here at Trilove, the literal roundtable podcast. And I'm not, af- I'm not afraid and- to admit it. All right, I'll be the first to say slavery. I think it's a bad idea. I think Cobra Verde was right about one thing when he said it was a crime. He was sure right about that. About movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon.org and at Trilon Cinema on all social media. Uh, I'm Jason Daphnis, alonist of the alone, and you can find me on Twitter, little old me at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. I thatch my roof with the skulls of my enemies. Sure. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I only have one fear in that in, it is that there will one day be no more nations left to conquer. My name is Harry Mackin and you can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. Uh, my name is Aaron. I have a quote here in a different language, which is uh, surprisingly untranslated for some reason. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at RB please. We cannot cut all of that, Harry, because we baked it into the intro, but I will cut most of it because it was a very embarrassing intro. Uh, today's movie is Cobra Verde, a 1987 film playing as part of the uh, Burdened with Dreams early Herzog series at the Trilon. Get tickets at Trilon.org. Not to this one, though, because it's already done playing. Uh, Aaron, tell us what it's about. Yes, Cobra Verde, 1987, uh, as mentioned, directed by Werner Herzog, uh, is based on Bruce Chatwin's 1980 novel, uh, The Viceroy of Ouida. Uh, the film is the fifth and the kind of final collaboration with Klaus Kinski. Um, I think uh, uh, their argumentative nature towards each other and, and maybe just kind of Klaus Kinski being himself kind of came to a head uh, during this film. Uh, this film kind of on release was seen, and I think over the years has generally been seen as, as one of the weaker uh, collaborations uh, with the two of them. Uh, the film stars Klaus Kinski uh, as a man named Francisco uh, Manuel de Silva, uh, who is kind of a, a former rancher turned minor, uh, who actually at the very beginning of the movie ends up killing his supervisor after a dispute over wages. Uh, he later becomes an outlaw and goes by the name Cobra Verde. Uh, he is hired by the, the wealthy Dom Octavio uh, Coutinho to watch and oversee the slaves on his plantation. He owns a, a sugar plantation, um, but he is angered when De Silva ends up impregnating all three of his daughters um, as a kind of retaliation uh, and just kind of a way to get um, uh, De Silva kind of out of his hair. He sends him uh, to Western Africa, specifically to Dahomey, uh, which is a present day uh, Benin. 
um, to kind of negotiate with the king of the Dahomey in order to reopen uh, the slave trade. Um, other than uh, uh, Klaus Kinski in this film, uh, King Ampa, who is also kind of a, a producer of the film, uh, plays a character called, uh, called uh, uh, Taparica, who is kind of his right-hand man. Um, other than that, Jose uh, Lugoy plays uh, the Don Octavio Coutinho. And um, not actually not actually too many casts to mention, uh, although I will say that one thing, this was shot uh, in Ghana, it was shot in Brazil, it was shot in Colombia, um, kind of as we talked a little bit about with Aguirre, uh, this film did kind of, uh, you know, it was shot uh, uh, in a bunch of different locations, and also there are a lot of extras who were kind of local people uh, in the areas that they were filming as well, so kind of uh, important to note that too. So, uh, Jason, uh, what was your opinion of this film? I was struck, I guess, this... Man, we were we were watching this movie, and Harry leaned over to me at the trial on and said, "This is the most inscrutable film I've ever seen," uh, which I feel like a lot of us are going to call on that. Um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe Aaron's got something a little bit more to to add. But uh, this film is a l- little bit unattainable, a little bit distant. Um, I am struck personally by how little an agent of the plot, like straight up plot and actor Cobra Verde as a character, really is. Um, you know, if you look at the broad strokes of the plot, he's shuffled off to Africa. Basically, he he kicks off his own demise by, uh, as Aaron mentioned, killing his supervisor over wages. Um, he's then shuffled off to Africa to die after, uh, you know, impregnating three women, well, women, uh, teens. Uh, then he's swept away into a tribal war that he doesn't really, like, super influence the outcome of. He's more or less a tool of it. Um and then when it's over, he's still left to die uh, on the shores of, you know, an African village. Um, parallel to that, uh, this movie leans a lot more on Klaus Kinski, I feel, than Nosferatu or Akira did. Um, he's obviously huge figures in both of those, but those have, I think, more um, standout and uh, plot-focused supporting characters as well, um, where I, I wonder if, just because of giving Klaus Kinski more screen time, I feel like if that's a lot of burden to bear on that one person, even as, you know... Um, as, as much as he mastered that really f- like look at this freak in the jungle type role. Um, I feel like it's weird to do that when he's such an active element of the movie, but such a passive element of the plot, as I've mentioned, um, you know, even that tribal war is, is pretty bloodless where, uh, you know, he, he assists more or less by accident, uh, ends up assisting um, one kingdom, one tribe to uh, conquer another and it's a pretty bloodless takeover, pretty bloodless coup. Um, Seth was pointing out that like we don't actually see blood being spilled as part of that assault. Uh, and all of his frenzying, I guess, my point is that all of his frenzying, all of the like fervor that he had whipped these uh, warriors into to take over a neighboring kingdom um, didn't lead to much violence. Uh, it like I don't know, it creates this weird mushy space. I'm not sure I like or is even intentional on the part of the movie between the character and like the actual effect of his presence. Um, the various uh, myths and absurdities that pepper the plot did catch my eye. Um, I just had to go back to like what's recurring. What am I feeling as I'm watching this movie uh, rather than like following specific elements of the plot? Well, whole lot of the way and that's probably going to show because i'm going to forget things that actually happened but uh you'll bear with me you love me for it um there's like the snow on the moon uh monologue that the barkeep tells him in the village before he um before he's shifted off to africa uh there's the you know the mad kings or one who's pretending to be mad um then there's you know the very myth of cobra verde himself that's his you know uh sort of christened uh, uh outlaw name um i wonder if that's a part of why things feel a little bit like I guess distant, like I said, thematically obtuse and materially like not quite attainable. Um, is if the script abstracts a little too much of it, uh, for me to like find a foothold, I guess. Um, 
that's you know my top level thoughts, which I've probably gone on a little bit too long with anyway. But uh, for the next section of our podcast, I need to call on uh, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Codranarde, please. <laughs> Did not know where that was going to go, but that was that was very fun. That you know that transition was more fun than um, much, if not all, of this movie. Um, so shout out to you, Jason. Um, yeah, I don't like the theme for me at least coming into this theme, and maybe this is the case for some of the rest of us as well, is just like, I don't really know what to expect with Herzog. I haven't seen a ton of his movies. Obviously, I'm seeing more in, in you know, as we go here. Um, but this one, especially, like, I didn't know Cobra Verde existed as a title until uh, the I saw it. It was part of the Trilon schedule, whereas with Nosferatu and um, Aguirre, I at least knew they existed. And I'm still sort of wrestling with how to to feel about this Um I, I I don't think it's a bad movie, but it's also, you know, it's not exactly a a breezy watch. It's uh, about, you know, like we've been saying, it's about the rise and fall of a, a fictional slave trader toward, I guess, the end of that era of overseas slavery. And, you know, the, the fact that it unfolds almost like a procedural, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily shy away from the brutality of that time. It has... Uh, uh, chunks where it's it's pretty dark it has that same sort of dryness um that we've seen with the couple of of herzog joints that we've covered up to this point um maybe almost too much dryness i'm not sure but it definitely makes for a trying viewing experience and um sort of like a geary i i guess at least in this case with cobra verde there's some on-screen text at the start and at the end um but otherwise kind of kind of like we said with a geary there's very little telegraphing of what it is Cobra Verde, the movie, would like for us to to feel about all this, which isn't to say that like Herzog doesn't know how to feel about slavery, and we as the audience doesn't know how to feel about slavery. But you know, it's nice when the product you know gives gives some sort of indication. I don't know if that's personal preference or what. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe that wouldn't be such a, a bad thing. Instead, it's you know, it's a movie highlighted by the trials and you know occasional successes uh, you know a string of successes by uh, de silva the slave trader and since it's klaus kinski it's a uh, he's a grotesque slave trader um and by the end by the end of it all he's he's a nobody again and maybe i'm not yet enough of a like a tried and true herzog fan or, or kinski fan if there are any of those um maybe that would paint my experience differently, but without something else to sort of jazz up this tale of the irredeemable Cobra Verde, uh, there's only so much I feel I can hang my hat on, which isn't to say I, I think it's a poorly made movie. I don't think that's the case for better and for worse. You know, a lot of this is held up by the fact that we are yet again in some pretty stunning locations that are not often, if ever, caught on film. And we're definitely milking that for all it's worth. And that's not everything, but it's definitely something. And it's probably something pretty important. Um, I, w- I was struck by some of the camera work, especially before we get to West Africa. Uh, the see Cobra Verde entering that bar at the beginning. Um, he has a pretty great entrance. And then the scene after all that, um, the sort of your money or your life scene, it's a pretty goofy scene, but it's visually framed in a pretty cool way. Um, him sort of standing in that not a doorway, but I don't know. You know what I mean? He's like leaning up against a wall and it looks pretty cool. And even after we get to Africa, the, the sequences of training the women are, uh, or, you know, training them to fight. They were like very big scale and, and I don't know, pretty cool. Even though <laughs> I can't help but feel like Klaus Kinski teaching someone to fight is like me trying to teach someone how to play video games. There's just like, we're, <laughs> we're out of our depth uh, a little bit there, but uh, regardless, um, yeah, no, I, I I appreciate stretches of this, but you know, it's it's far from a fun time at the movies. And I'll say usually during these conversations we have 
something unlocks and I find something new to like. And I genuinely hope that's the case here too. So I'm looking forward to this, um, all things considered. Uh, but I will, I, I'll have to cut this short. Um, I'm actually, I'm about to, to meet the king who I hear is, um, and I quote, insane, or maybe he's just pretending to be. Um, but, but here he comes now. Uh, king Harry, uh, king, I yield the floor to you, sir. Hey, thanks, Cody. There are like three Hamlets in this movie, huh? Um, yeah, this is a really interesting challenge from like a podcasting film wannabe buff perspective, right? Because I think that um, knowing that it's Herzog and knowing Herzog's reputation and knowing my sort of um, understanding of Herzog, I really want to give like throw a big bone to this. And I think that there are a lot of great ideas here. I like, I think that this is an, a deeply intentional movie, right? Like, I don't think that there was any confusion on the part of Herzog, on the part of the writers, on the part of Kinski, even about what they were doing and why I think it's a very realized movie in all of that sense. And I think that there is like a, probably a lot of depth here. Um, and a lot of textual richness to explore, uh, right. And all, all of that is to say that, like, I'm with Cody and Jason in that I didn't actually enjoy watching this movie pretty much at all. I know that enjoyment is not like why we do movies. It's not why we talk about movies necessarily. But I I guess I sort of succumbed to astonishment for a lot of this in the sense that I didn't really know what I was meant to be parsing. And I've I've got a couple of different angles of approach we can look at. I think that this is a really deeply absurdist movie. Um, I think it's a movie that revels in absurdity and in a lack of sort of like um, morality for the purpose of describing what a world under slavery and that contains slavery in it can look like and what a, a human nature that can contain slavery must look like. Um, I think that Cobra Verde is sort of uh, an encapsulation in character of that. Um, I really like that character as sort of a... Um, a glimpse into sort of the self-defeating interiority of someone who ascribes to his life philosophy. Um, and I think that all of that is very Herzog, but I brought all of those after I saw the movie, right? Like I, I don't think I was really constructing a critical reading of this movie while I was watching it. And I think I've had more fun thinking about it than I had fun watching it. Um, and I like, I'm not thrilled to watch it again. And frankly, even really to talk about it. Right. Um, that being said, there are, there are things to appreciate here. Um, it's really cool to see this many gone in extras. Um, particularly the, the aforementioned King, um, King Ampa is the actor's name. He's a Ghanan filmmaker and actor, and he was really good in this. I thought, um, I, I thought it was really, uh, great of, of Kinski to work or not Kinski Herzog to work so closely with so many Ghanan people on this movie. Um, like Cody said, like, this is not, this is not a movie that is confused about its ethic, about what it's trying to do. I think it's as hateful and as angry as Aguirre in many ways. Um, I just am a big baby, I guess, or maybe just a not very educated baby. And I also would have preferred something like Aguirre's, um, like telegraphing a little bit. Um, I understand why that telegraphing doesn't exist in this movie. And, um, I even really appreciate Cody's reference to the procedural nature of this movie. You can really tell that it's a movie that was based on a book, um, in, in some good ways. Right. Um, but all of that is to say that I think that like, the formal absurdity of the plot and of the, the weirdly disaffected, weirdly sort of almost montage like 
plot conveyance where stretches of time move forward. And uh, it's a very impressionistic movie in a lot of ways in the sense that like, I didn't know, for instance, that um, that Cobra Verde killed his supervisor or that his ranch was um, was taken from him after it after a drought, because like the only like indication of those things we get are like these poems basically that, that appear at the top of the movie. Um, and I think that, I don't know. I think, like I said, I think that Herzog is not really concerned about making sure his audience understands this. Not that he was considering, uh, 2021 shitty podcasters thinking about his movies. Right. And nor should he have to, but I, I think that this is one that just sort of, um, I don't have the, the right historical vocabulary or critical vocabulary to, um, to appreciate the way it sort of deserves to be. But I'm interested in hearing everyone's thoughts and in sort of unpacking what I think it's trying to do and why it doesn't work for me. Um, so with, with that, I don't know that I have a great transition. Uh, Aaron, it's your turn now. <laughs> Thank you for that great transition, Harry. Uh, I am, uh, I think I'm quite mixed about this film. Uh, I, I think frankly, if, I may be a little negative on this film, uh, to be honest. Um, I, it, I kind of responding to some things that people have maybe already said, I, I, I do understand that the film is kind of like undeniably, um, quite critical of Kinski's character, right? He is seen as this, this undeniably just an awful, awful person. Um, he is perfectly happy to use the, the sale of human beings for his own personal gain. That is one of the worst things you can do. Right. Um, and some it, may say the worst thing that you can some, do. Some might say the worst. Yes. Um, and, and I, I do understand, of course, as well, that the, I do the, believe that the film is quite critical of uh, slavery as, you know, an institution. Um, but I, I find the way the ways that, that Herzog crafts this film to be quite an, unsatisfactory. And, and frankly, I find it often succumbing to the kinds of things that you uh, don't want to succumb to when you're making a film about slavery. Um, so I, I guess first, the, there is some interesting stuff here, right? Um I think that some of the early scenes uh, on the sugar plantation, uh, specifically conversations uh, uh, with the character uh, of Dom Octavio uh, Coutinho, uh, I think that some of those are quite interesting and kind of putting slavery into a larger uh, kind of global economic context, um, uh, saying, you know, that, that, that there are countries that outlawed slavery, uh, for example, uh, Britain in this film, that are still relying on products from countries that didn't, right? And in that way, they are still uh, kind of enabling slavery. I think that there's some interesting things that you can take uh, uh, from kind of those kind of early conversations in the film, and you can kind of apply those to kind of this larger uh, uh, historical context, but also a context of kind of how our economy works now. Um, I do also like the idea that I believe was brought up by Jason about uh, uh, De Silva kind of acting uh, as a pawn in kind of this larger, the, the series of larger conflicts. I think that that is quite interesting, right? I think that um, a criticism of the film could be that it kind of builds up uh, De Silva as this kind of this this kind of uber bench, right? This kind of mover of history. Obviously, it undercuts that with the end, but I think it also undercuts that by by having him kind of you know, being upon the entire time, whether that's for various uh, uh, kind of European powers um, as a way to kind of uh, bring back the slave trade, uh, but also the, the, you know, the idea that he is kind of uh, upon uh, for various Africans to kind of, you know, uh, Hey, I want my, you know, brother killed and then I'll take over. Um, I think that there maybe is a point to be made um, about 
the kind of lack of context given to the audience, uh, tying in with with kind of our main character's um, lack of context as well in, in his position in kind of these different cultures, right? Um, some of that's pretty interesting. Um, but from a, a standpoint of stuff that I, I don't really like, I think that there's a, a few things that I feel are quite off here. Um, this is kind of a, a common criticism of Herzog, and as someone who's not uh, terribly familiar with him, but I, I've liked the stuff that I've seen, I... I I've seen kind of the criticism that like he often approaches some of his narrative films uh, as a documentarian. Right. Uh, I think that that's a common yet maybe pretty lazy criticism uh, of Herzog. But I think it is kind of unfortunately the case here where there are very long stretches in the middle of this film that feel like Herzog is kind of just letting the camera run. And there is kind of an unfortunate kind of voyeuristic aspect um, that I think can feel quite uh, uncomfortable. And I think that um, paradoxically, the the increased look at uh, the kind of the local people in this film um, from a lot of different places, because he he shot all over, uh, I think it actually causes some issues. Um, And then if I I think about uh, Aguirre, which I think handled this pretty well, the the kind of the local people that uh, Kinski's character is is kind of uh, brutally you know slaughtering and, and oppressing and whatnot um, are are seen very fleetingly and rarely right and um, because that happens you know I think there are some criticisms about that that you can you can kind of leverage right uh, but in general they they kind of that absence and that kind of fleeting nature highlights the, the kind of paranoia and the kind of manic nature of this main character. And I think that it creates this very um, absurd kind of feeling about colonialism in general. Right. And I think that that works, you know, they think that, that people are shooting them from the trees. Sometimes they are. And then they, they in, in, in return, will start shooting guns anywhere. Uh, and you know, the Spaniards in that film come off looking like the jokes, right? They're still evil people, but they, there's a kind of dark humor there. Um, uh, you know, th- this film has a much, uh, is much more concerned with portraying, uh, the, these people, specifically the, these Africans, these people, uh, in, you know, in modern day, um, modern day Benin, but which is Dahomey, uh, uh, you know, back then. Um, and unfortunately, I did a lot of research on this, and it seems like a lot of those depictions are not actually that accurate uh, historically, right? Uh, which I think is a bit of a problem because this film uh, and a lot of Herzog films kind of rely on the feeling of authenticity, right? Um, it does that by by shooting, if not in the exact location, then uh, very close locations to where the story would be taking place uh, by having, uh, uh, you know, kind of costumes and sets and whatnot that feel authentic, but it feels kind of hollow when I do a little bit of research and they, they weren't actually authentic. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm a little conflicted about this. Uh, and there's stuff in this film that I really did like, uh, but I think overall I am, uh, quite a bit more down on it compared to, uh, Aguirre, which I, I really liked. So anyway, I'm rambling. So yeah. No, you made a lot of really, really great points there. Um, I think particularly one thing that you said that I want, that I really latched onto was that, um, the way that in Aguirre, the, the natives are sort of, they're fleeting presence, right? But they're sort of like dignity or at least at the very least competence is sort of stark contrast, right? To the colonialists. Whereas this movie does a weird conflation thing where like we are clearly meant to see the, the operating absurdity of, um, empire under like via the slave trade. But like, there are a lot of moments in this movie where I felt like we were supposed to be laughing at the, the natives or that we were supposed to see their customs or their way of life as sort of 
as absurd. And, and there was this sort of general conflation of colonialism and empire and sort of like big scare quotes here, right? But savagery, right? Um, that, that I think that particularly the like, the lack of, um, interest in accurate portrayals and the way that it sets up these comically absurd situations and reversals of fortune for the main character sort of like establish it, it makes for a, um, in a really uncomfortable set of moments, right. Where like, there are a bunch of times where I thought like, is this a joke or is it like, am I supposed to be laughing? Um, and, and like that, that continues toward this sort of very like, almost openly fetishistic portrayal of these characters, right? Where there are a lot of times where not to use very like quote weird language, but like there are a lot of like black bodies on this screen that are, that are deeply fetishized, right? Like there are a lot of like long segments of this movie that are just about looking at a person who is, I mean, like the very last shot of this movie is a, a polio stricken man whose legs are underdeveloped, who is um, basically crawling along or self propelling himself with his arms along the shore. And it, I, I think it was supposed to be kind of like disquieting. Right. And that was like very sort of upsetting to look at, like not, not because I, I was upset by looking at the man, but just because like there was something sort of, again, vo- like you had said, Aaron, like voyeuristic and opportunistic about that portrayal. And also I thought about like, there was something about the Amazons that felt that way to me as well. Uh, and there was something about the, the nuns choir that felt that way to me as well, especially at the end where like, there was that great quote about how the masters will, are the, the slaves will sell their masters and grow wings, which is very master slave dialectic. And I think that's kind of what the movie is trying to do ultimately, but it didn't really feel earned to me, especially with the like, um, the choir being the, the credits that we end on. I mean, I, I'm thinking about like, uh, um, Ghana and Hess or Ganja and Hess, excuse me. And how, like how deeply earned that ending felt to me with like the choir of singing children, um, black children in that case. And like here it was like, I don't know guys. Like, I don't know if, if this is really like, I don't know that the, the movie that I just witnessed like made me feel like this ending that I'm looking at now was earned. I don't know. What do you think about that, Jason? I was just going to clarify, like we do this thing sometimes on this podcast where we um, sort of interrogate where the, the movies, I guess, sardonic lens might be pointed. And we sort of go one step beyond that to ask, um, you know, that first reaction, that discomfort, the disquieting uh, nature of that reaction that you have that feeling to seeing, you know, um, uh, you know, d- deformed bodies or, you know, people who are, who have disabilities or, you know, just so like, I guess the way that it portrays so many of the different types of people seen in this movie, not always your reaction is the, is, you know, a, a completely comfortable one, we'll say to put, put it, to put it lightly. Um, and like we, we, I want to know, does just to clarify, is that, do you think that's like the way that that feels is intentional? Do you think that Herzog wanted you to interrogate that feeling or just to feel that feeling? Do you think it was just evocative or that it was supposed to get you to like actually question your first reaction to it? Yeah. Right. And it's a great question. I mean, I, I think that, that you're, you're certainly right. Like there's certainly an element of that there. I just think that like, I, I don't know that he, well, I don't know. I don't, who am I to say that what Herzog has the right or doesn't have the right to sure, sure. say, but I just like, whereas like the, the dark absurdity and Aguirre always felt like it was punching 
very clearly the right targets. Here, it seemed like the joke, quote unquote, was this sort of like, look, the the colonists are exactly the same as these wild backwards, quote unquote, savages sometimes. To me, it felt that way, where, where it was like, look, like, Cobra Verde, Aguirre, it's like he's he's almost at home here, right? Like he regains his name, Green Snake. And it's like these things were the, it's the same thing. Like he's doing the same thing he was doing there. He's just a bandit either place. And it's like, I don't know, man. Like there are like stark, I or like even there was some this sort of like absurdity of like, why would anybody follow this guy? And it felt like it was almost weirdly trivializing of slavery at, at different points in this movie. And I understand that that might be me missing the point there, but it just like, I I don't know. I feel like it was, it was, um, the, the sort of joke was so darkly like sardonic and roundly, um, like disparaging that it felt like it was also disparaging like the disenfranchised and the disempowered, um, and sort of like making a general statement about the like absurd, futility of the human race itself rather than something more pointed and more interested in interrogating power. And I, I think that's where I was frustrated, I guess. Um, but okay. do you, do you agree with that, Aaron? Or like, what do you think about all that? Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say that I, I don't necessarily view it as, as kind of a joke. I guess I would say that I, I don't really view much humor in this film at all in the same way that I did with Aguirre, uh, which I think is fine. I don't think you, you need that. But I think that right. the, the, the humor in that film kind of, uh, you know, it, it worked to kind of undercut, uh, uh, you know, what the, the Spaniards were trying to do. Um, I think that, that that film was, was very successful in that regard uh, in kind of my reading of it uh, and in my enjoyment of the film, my like of the film. Um, this, this film doesn't, yeah, I, I don't feel that it has that same sense of humor that it's using that. In I the think same I agree manner, with that. Um, which I, I think is fine, but um I don't know that that it it you know Aguirre nailing that sense of humor I think really worked um, and here I, I kind of feel that the things that the film is trying to do instead are, are not really working uh, for me um, and yeah I mean I agree I mean so one of the things that I did there's a there's a, a Sam Story wrote an article uh, I think he was getting an MA in film should remember where but uh, this is an article that you can. Uh, uh, kind of downloaded read. Uh, it's called Picturesque Savagery, Primitivism, and Authenticity in Cobra Verde. Uh, it's quite good. Uh, it goes into, I think, in depth, uh, quite a lot of the uh, inaccuracies and whatnot and how this film kind of builds up this idea of authenticity uh, while not really feeling authentic. I think one of the examples is the um, the the kind of the the, the female tribe of, of warriors uh, that um, De Silva kind of commands in order to uh, kill this king and kind of help kind of uh, bring back the slave trade. Um, they're all nude and as far as I can tell and as far as that article uh, was saying that that just was was not really historically accurate which I think is very problematic uh, there are you know lots of shots uh, in this film of, of naked women um, you know I'm not an expert on this but you know as, assuming that that article is correct and that that is not historically accurate that that feels kind of off to me right that feels like this film is trying to portray something uh, as feeling authentic while not actually being authentic which is I think a big issue. I think you, <laughs> you need to, you need to Turns put in out. the work on that one, right? Yes. Um, 
and just little stuff like that, costumes and and some of the the fighting scenes and whatnot. Um, you know, this this is also a film that is not very pointedly not. Uh, uh, you know, according to Herzog's own words, it's not a historical film, right? This is trying it's using the context of history. Uh, in kind of an anachronistic uh, form in order to make kind of larger statements about human nature and uh, slavery and the soul and, and, and whatnot. Um, and I just don't think it works. Um, I mean, the, the, the original novel this came from, the Viceroy, the Viceroy of Ouida, which again, as I mentioned earlier, is the Bruce Chatwin novel from about a decade before this film came out. Um, Supposedly, that film was quite well researched, uh, uh, is my understanding. And one thing that Herzog did when creating this film in order to, to you know, admittedly make a maybe a better film was to kind of splice around some of the uh, chronological nature uh, of that book. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I don't uh, I think there's something little upsetting about that. I don't know. I mean, maybe if you really sold the the kind of. Uh, the point about human nature here, um, but I, I don't, I don't know that it does that for me either. So um, yeah, yeah, um, totally fair. I think these, I don't like these. These feel like the right questions, right? Like the 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 nature of humor, and it's um, I guess easy for us to like compare and contrast based on like, uh, for example, Aguirre, you know, movies we've watched recently, and can kind of say like, well, like what about and the answers might be kind of obvious, but like, you know, this could have been more, I don't want to say just like straight up humorous, but like more um, satirical. It could have been more of anything, but because of the subject matter, like where, where did it get to a point where Herzog maybe decided like he couldn't do that or like what, in terms of this being like an authentic piece, like where, at, at what point did he hit a wall and sort of decide that he like maybe couldn't, and this is pure speculation, right? But like, like what, where did he hit a point where he decided he couldn't do that? And like, what, I guess, alternative choices did he have to make to uh, like make this something different? And this isn't an answer to any of that. It's more so me like, again, still being pretty dumbfounded, but like trying to find a new angle in here and, and like thinking about, what I don't know what this movie could have been. I, I hate to say like what this movie was trying to do, but just like there's enough writing on the wall for me to think like, okay, like I, I could easily see this being, and with me knowing next to nothing about the source material other than what you folks have, have mentioned here, but just like the character of, um, of De, uh, De Silva, uh, of, of De Silva Cobra Verde, him being, you know, he, he's one person who he due to, I guess who he is. It, it's, tough to call him charming because he's played by Klaus Kinski, but just bearing with me, but like him sort of like get, getting out, like having again, these like strings of, of successes, you know, he's, he's making moves, he's making choices and he keeps, he, he reaps the benefits of them. Right. You know, he, he's able to, he kills his employer. He, um, has, you know, a successful robbery here. He befriends like a, a bar owner here. Like these are from his perspective, like very positive interactions, just uh, like, you know, he, he gets a, a cushy job on a plantation. He, uh, yikes, uh, he impregnates uh, a lot of girls. He, he becomes like a, he gets put into a position where he can become, you know, this slave trader, even though he is being sent to his death. He seems very, I don't know if it's like <laughs> just uh, Klaus Kinski's, uh, Kinski's intentional performance or just him being non 
nonplussed in, in in general, but just like he he seems he seems not phased the the character rather seems not phased by this move in, and he gets there and like uh, defying all odds, he convinces you know in exchange for rifles, and he becomes very successful, and then in the end, it's you know slavery is outlawed. There's nothing he as this single there's nothing he can do about it, right? Like the, he, there's nothing he can do to defy this. Uh, and I think he says something along the lines of like, well, at least, you know, something is, as something's happening. Right. And, and we were left off with him again, one puny measly man, unable to to pull a boat out into the, uh, out into the water. And I think canonically it is like the sea like sweeps him away and, and he drowns. And like, that's the end of it. And like, maybe there is like something there to make something pointedly, Again, I hesitate to say the word humorous because of the movie that you know, what this movie is actually about. But just like I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that was the movie that that Herzog wanted to make and and found he couldn't um, for good reasons or bad. I'm not really sure, but that's I don't know. I have no idea if that's anything. I'm trying to <laughs> rationalize this as much as possible, but that's that's something through. I don't know, just hearing what you guys are talking about that I kind of landed on. I'm really glad you brought that up, Cody, because that really brought me around to maybe one of my other main critiques of this movie and maybe the the most fertile place, at least for me to explore it, which is the Cobra Verde character himself. This is like, this is like a picaresque in a lot of ways, right? Like, like, uh, Cobra Verde is this like depraved lunatic character who through no real merit of his own, other than his own depravity and willingness to do anything is sort of like experiences wild success after wild success in the weirdest context possible and the most sort of comically absurd context possible, right? Like he ends up becoming this sort of like key player in this coup by one African prince uh, over another. And then like, again, he's sent to revitalize the slave trade and sort of inexplicably makes it worth work, even though it was meant to be a death sentence for him, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, um, it's like Herzog's Barry Lyndon in like a really weird, dark way. Right. But my problem with that is exactly that ending that you just brought up, Cody, which is that I interpret Cobra Verde as having this very strange, almost like dreamlike um, self-awareness throughout this film where like after his ranch is taken from him, he becomes like the Joker basically, or he becomes, I guess right. a better, a better parallel would be like the comedian in Watchmen where like he is a, he is a person who is so inured to the dark absurdity of the world that he understands that the only way to survive man is to be just as dark and shitty as the rest of it. You know, like that last scene was so frustrating and so empty to me because he's like, Oh, slavery is ending. It was a crime and it's good that it's ending. And now finally we can be destroyed. And it's like, bro, like that was your whole, that was your bread and butter. Like you, you don't get to say shit like that, you know? And I like, I get that we were, so it's supposed to be unsatisfying, but it's like this, this whole idea that like, there's something almost like romantic, tragic about Cobra Verde in the sense that like he understands that he is this this disgusting human being who is like never had a friend and who is doomed to be evil, right? Like there's this idea that like he says he's Cobra Verde and, and like as much as he is sort of claiming that that persona, that identity, it is also like the the crucifix on his back, right? Like it's the the or the the um chain around his neck is this idea that like no matter where he goes, r- whether he's in Brazil, he's Cobra Verde, the the lunatic bandit everybody fears, or he'll go to um he'll go to Africa and, and lo and behold 
told by the end of the movie, he's literally known as Green Snake again, and he can't escape from this perception of him as the the this evil man because of the world that he's a part of. And that's and at the beginning of this movie, he has this um this very like Tony Soprano in the first scene of The Sopranos, where he has this like this frank and and sort of like tender conversation with this bartender who is similarly marginalized. And they express this sort of like shared desire to escape to another world, a world of ice and snow beyond the mountains where they can be free and where they don't have to be a part of this depravity. And like, there's some sort of, and I know that the movie isn't actually getting me to, to this point, but like, there's some suggestion that like, like Cobra Verde is redeemed by his understanding of the things that he's doing as meaningless and awful. And do you know what I mean? But, and it's like, that really, really doesn't work for me, I guess. It's just like, I feel no sympathy or empathy for Cobra Verde as a character whatsoever. And I find it disgusting that we think that anybody would infer that we should just because he sort of like has arrived at this nihilistic understanding and posturing of humanity. And again, I think that that nihilistic posturing is ultimately what we're meant to take away from slavery. It's like, in a world where something as comically untrue as slavery can be a thing, right? Where, where he says that, oh, slavery is an element of human nature. What he means is not like there are people who are meant to be slaves. What he means is that there are, that it is human nature to want to create slavery systems, even though they are so comically unclear, right? Like we see competent slaves in this movie and we see that the slavers who are meant to be their quote unquote masters are every bit as stupid and depraved as, as anyone who has ever walked this planet. And like in a world where that sort of like ethic is, uh, imposed on the universe nothing else carries right like there can be nothing good there can be nothing no fairness there can be no like and i get it right but it's like bro you could have done something about it instead instead of sort of like reveling in your depravity uh even though like he didn't even revel in it right like he says i've fathered 86 children and it gives me no uh no pleasure or something, right? No satisfaction. I think he says, it's like, why do I give a flying shit about Cobra Verde's satisfaction? You know, I guess that's where I end up with it. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right. I think it does to an extent want us to be in that headspace with it. Um, you know, I, I go back to sort of how he sees himself, um, how he like, you know, there's that scene, I guess the, the one I'm leaning, well, the two things I'm leaning on are, um, the fact that he is then named green snake later on, and seems to not be super like jazzed about it. Um, once he's given right hand seat, uh, after deposing the, the King's brother, uh, and later, or excuse me, before that, just before he's released from the guards, um, he is sort of like in a daze, he's been tied up, uh, he's been a prisoner for you know, however long. And he just sort of mutters to himself in this half dreaming state. He dreams the snow, like he wants to get away. He wants to sort of avoid, I think what, what the movie is trying to get us to do with those, both those things, like his distaste at being known as uh green snake where he is and his like desire to escape to where his, um, you know, that, that mythical land where he and the bartender were talking about. Uh, I think what it wants us to do there is sort of have that empathy. Um, but it doesn't deliver on that almost at all. And I wonder where it lost me along that way. Was it just at the root of this is a story about a slaver and I, and I don't, ha- I'm not bought in, you know, I'm not a fan or was it somewhere along the way that it could have m- sort of internalized or externalized more of that point, uh, before like asking us to make the jump into, 
have some empathy for this person, for this character, because we're not going to give you enough to laugh at, I guess. I gotta, I guess, disagree a little bit with, with some of the, the characterization of what this film has been doing. Although I don't, I'm not like defending film, I think, but I, I, I don't think you're supposed to feel empathy or even sympathy necessarily for Kinski's character. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe I'm incorrect about that, but I, I don't, I don't think so. Right. Um, uh, I, I think that we're kind of supposed to see the ruin of this person who's is brought about, you know, um, by, I guess, kind of a mixture of his own actions, but but also kind of larger, um, you know, economic, political uh, forces kind of outside of his control. Right. That, that even this kind of um, charismatic, powerful person uh, is kind of uh, kind of ground beneath the, the wheel of history, just like anybody else. But I, I don't I don't think we're supposed to feel empathy, I guess. Maybe that's like a minor nitpick about what. You guys have been saying, but I don't yeah, think maybe, we're, you know maybe, what I mean? Maybe empathy yeah, maybe empathy is the wrong way to say it, I guess. I think it's more like consideration, like know that this person yeah. is also human, like, like know, know that there are, that there is another piece here, that there is another like viewpoint. And I think the viewpoint is supposed to be informed by this man has like gotten a reputation for what he is, that he's as haunted by it as he is benefited by it sort of thing. And I don't think that those intimations really work to build the character for me because like again at the core he is a uh a vagabond he is a um you know fiend he's a a willing slaver uh he is a war criminal etc you know he's a rapist these things like nothing in the face of that can really get me on board i guess i I guess uh, sorry go ahead well yeah i was was gonna be like one sentence i guess i i kind of view it as as um seeing seeing through the the consequences of this person's kind of actions and the way this person is living. You know, I think oh. it's making the point that uh, I don't think it's making it terribly effectively, unfortunately, which is again, another issue with the film, but I think it is making the point that, that the enslavement of other people, right. At the oppression of other people is ultimately a uh, incredibly dehumanizing thing, right. That, that it's it, actually, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a point that, that I, I think you do, now I'm talking longer than I said I would, but it, it's a point that um, can kind of tread very closely to, I guess, what you're talking about, like may, maybe sympathy or empathy or whatnot. But I, it's I like think it's, it's, you're you're right. It's sympathy and empathy are not the right words, right? Like like Cobra Verde is a despicable human being. I think the yeah. film understands that. I think the film very very clearly wants you yeah. to see that. I just like I don't care that that slavery was dehumanizing for slavers, I guess, ultimately is where I am. Right. It's like, I don't give a shit uh, that slavers also had sucky lives when they were fucking enslaving people. Right. Like you're, you're trying to make me like buy into this interiority of Cobra Verde writing this letter about how he's had 86 children and still he dreams of the like fucking land of milk and honey where he can finally be free. And it's like, fuck off. Like, I don't give a shit about you Cobra Verde. I, I hope that you die in the worst manner imaginable right and like i don't know i like i don't i don't i don't think that that um being that i need to be interested in what slavery did to slavers at all to understand it as the worst thing that's ever happened in history right it's like i don't care about how it warped human society uh for the people in power it that just does not it doesn't matter to me like it doesn't need to matter to me i guess i don't know no i think i think you're right i think my main issue just at a very like pathos level is that this movie's anger does not match your anger about it it doesn't like in the way that agire doesn't it doesn't quite like make enough fun it doesn't make it it doesn't make it light enough it doesn't make it heavy enough it just is sort of 
in ways there, not really, you know, one foot in the ocean style where it's like, we got to, we've got, we must serve this base um, understanding, of course, that slavery is bad and the people who enacted it and enabled it and benefited from it are all to blame. Uh, and yet, like, lament for a moment how terrible it was for also the Cobra Verde. The Cobra Verde. I, I cannot earnestly and wholeheartedly say the only part of his interiority I care about is that one scene where um, Cobra Verde, he donned the Willem Dafoe voice and was like, you know, I'm I'm something of a Cobra Verde myself. <laughs> he kicks the snake. Another example of uh, <laughs> another example of uh, animal cruelty on the set of a yet Herzog more animal film. cruelty for Herzog. Also, yes, yes, real yes. hideous. It it is it is uh, just as a quick side note. It is funny how the previous two movies we watched in this series <laughs> raised my hackles as soon as any animal appeared, and I mean like at the rotting farm and wherever he was, uh, there was a like a, a bowl laying on its back. side. Yeah, and I and I thought, oh, that they they like de- they dehydrated that cow or something. They did something really I was horrible about to the cow as well. And then the crabs that he's kicking around in the fort, I was like, well, I wonder how many of those are props and how many of those are just dead crabs and how many of those weren't dead crabs before they started using them for the movie. We, need, we just need to keep animals away from Werner Herzog and we need yeah, to keep you'd... human beings away from Klaus Kinski. I think that if we could just leave Klaus Kinski with the animals and leave Herzog with the people, we might be no, okay. No, because he tossed that monkey too. We're, the, <laughs> no one, no one is safe. From, I, mean, I mean, wait, Kinski's dead, right? He's been, Kinsky, Kinsky's been, been dead, dead for like he's been 20 years. Yeah. Thank uh, fucking Christ. It, it is I like a... Him, right? I think that's what My Best Fiend is about, is that the Herzog murdering Klaus Kinski. <laughs> uh, the dehumanizing uh, actions of, of constantly just beating the shit out of extras on the set of movies eventually caught up to him uh, in a very dehumanizing way, you know, so... Good, yeah. I mean, I think that um, I'm, I might have been wrong about my... Um, my Kubrick. I think that I said that this is uh this was the Barry Lyndon. It might be the Clockwork Orange, right? Because like the the whole idea is that like there's this depraved character, but like characters or individuals within this system are totally inconsequential in the face of the system itself, right? Like it it grinds everybody into paste equally. That's kind of what Clockwork Orange is all about, too, right? Is that like no matter how bad Alex DeLarge is, like the clockwork orange system that he becomes victimized by is infinitely worse. And like, that's kind of what this is doing too, in a, in a sense, right. That like Cobra Verde is ultimately like, however fearsome, however grotesque, however um, terrible the, the legendary bandit Cobra Verde is, he is ultimately nothing in the face of the, the larger dehumanization of history itself, right. Of, of um, slavery and of uh, like, colonialism uh, it, it reduces everything to uh pawns and and absurd yeah. pawns I, I actually like that i do that is like the one thing i think that sticks with me from this film is that idea of kind of history being this larger thing that is decided by economics and states mm-hmm. right and not individual people not um, just I think individual terrifying people right which, yeah there, right. there's something there for me that is there. That does come through. But I think you got to back up pretty far, especially in a movie as plotty as this, to see it and to really like internalize that as, oh, if that's the point, then X, then I then I feel X about it. Um, I, I have to, at least I do, I have to back up really far from the actual text to start seeing like, oh, if that is the narrative thread, if that is the point that this movie wanted to make, then I can like follow it through. But it doesn't like... Like, unless the line goes slack pretty early, I think, and still is like, well, the guy back there, he's still holding the rope. Like, that that's still the point. I, I guess 
it it fits it works it's just not represented throughout the movie for me it's it's also like that there's a weird stark contrast to that enigmatic final quote right where like at the very end of the movie the movie just straight up says like the master are the slaves will sell their masters and grow wings which like I, maybe it's ironic but like that it almost read to me as like oh the the moral arc of history is long but it bends toward justice which feels like exactly not what this movie is saying in in some ways right where it's like I don't know, man. Like, is that true? And like, if so, like, are you telling people to just wait because like things are going to work out, you know, or that like, don't worry, these people are going to get their just comeuppance in time because their consequences will naturally lead to their ruinous uh, despair. And that doesn't work for me either. Right. And like, I don't, I don't know that that, that works at all. I like, I didn't see this as a movie that ultimately points out how like, slavers are going to get what's coming to them or that like that slaves have this sort of inherent humanity that that makes them impossible to repress the way that that um quote suggests right i think that the the early quote in the beginning where it just basically says that like hey just so you know like this is a damned world right this is a this is a blasted wasteland that we're a part of that there is no hope uh and make sure you carry that with you as you consider the events of this film are like much that's much closer to the to my experience with this movie than that quote at the end was but maybe i'm missing something I don't think you're missing much at all. Uh, I think that Cobra Verde is uh, is a land of contrasts. I think that you could <laughs> paint it with any any brush you like. Um, but we have hit the hour mark on a movie we promised to talk about for 35 minutes. Uh, is there anything else that uh, that anybody else wanted to any any other uh, gas left in anybody's tanks that we should empty before we hit the road again? Well, for the record, it's more like 50 minutes because again, you will be cutting the like nine minutes of bullshit that was at the top of this. Of course. Yeah. I mean, sure. Absolutely. I will. Yeah. Uh, that's all coming out. That's all counter. Yeah. Counterpoint. What if we didn't counterpoint counter counterpoint? I definitely am not. <laughs> I say some uh, troubling. I say some troubling things in that first nine minutes that I would like to take out of the podcast. Bro, I can chop and screw recording. Oh, uh, yeah, he, uh, he really committed to it. This is a one party state and we, everybody knew, um, I've always uh, so said I w- that about us. <laughs> I will open the floodgates once. Again. Well, I guess not the floodgates because nothing's coming out. Uh, open the door once more to final thoughts before we head into our final segment of the show. I open the floodgates every night and nothing comes out. You know what I mean? So he made a weird yeah. clitoris joke before, <sighs> and now he's making a piss joke. I, I mean, piss or diarrhea. I don't know. Like find, find, find your mark, Mackin. Uh, I'm going to just, I'm the, the door is closed. Fuck it. Uh, but uh, open your mouth once more for um, uh, the intro of our final segment, Harry. Was that a, a reference to that recent video uh, on that, that one concert that happened with the, Never mind. Uh, yeah. Let's do the, um, let's do the final segment now. Aaron, do you have anything left to say? God, I think I'm good. Are you sure? Thank you. <laughs> I'm good. Are you sure? You sure? All right. All right. Uh, well, let's do our final segment. It's the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Beautiful. Wow. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for that treacherous introduction. Um, yeah, I made the uh, the executive decision to pivot today's segment away from the subject matter of the film we just finished discussing. So we're going to put all that behind us. Uh, what I did instead was I put together a little something I like to call Snake Love, a Cobra podcast. Um, Ooh. N- not really wordplay. You didn't want to um, do a tri-libs about 
being slavers. Yeah, Tony? yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Harry's suggestion yesterday, uh, last night as we were standing outside of the theater. He suggest, yeah, suggested we do a tri-libs, um, where we uh, put together a story based on the movie we just watched. Um, uh, in addition to I, not doing tri-libs two weeks in a row, zone, if we're not pushing ourselves, what are we doing here? You know. Well, I don't know. Some of us here might be afraid of snakes. Uh, not to, I don't call anybody out. I don't know what our fears are, but we will be using the titular animal uh, of a cobra here as a springboard to highlight various significant cinematic snakes throughout history, throughout movies. Uh, I realize this is even maybe more of a stretch than we're accustomed to. So I hope um, none of y'all pull a hammy as we go here. I know I certainly have pulled one already. Um, I'm going to try to keep the damage to a minimum as we go here. But what I'll do is present, uh, I'll present each uh, serpent-related trivia tidbit one at a time. And after each statement, I will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end wins. As always, uh, trivia mafia rules uh, apply here. And as they say, use your noodles, not your Googles. Again, those are trivia mafia rules that were- uh, Drag him. Drag him. Um, So with that, let's go ahead and and jump in, or slither in, rather. Um, We'll start, uh, I I guess, with an obvious choice for snake movies. We've got the modern masterpiece, uh, 2006's, I believe, Snakes on a Plane. So the uh, the Internet Movie Database, they provide us with access to the full catalog of um, movie taglines that were attached to this film at various uh, times during the marketing process. What I'm going to do is recite three taglines. Two of them will be legit. One will be not legit. And as you've probably inferred by now, y'all will be looking to pick out the tagline that is not legit. So I'll read each one of these one at a time. You'll pick the imposter. First one, sit back, relax, enjoy the fright. Second one, airline food ain't what you got to worry about. And then the third one, this summer, brace for impact. So which one of those is the imposter snakes on a plane tagline, Aaron? I had a Snakes on a Plane poster when I was growing up. And uh oh. Holy shit, that's the least surprising information I've I, ever learned on this podcast. I, I think I got it going to the movie theater to see Snakes on a Plane, and they gave it to me. And when you're a kid, you just Hell put. Yeah. I had an Aaron Carter poster up in my bedroom. Did, to this day, I've heard two Aaron Carter songs, but his first name was Aaron. So got a rep. That's right. Um, uh, I, I, think it's, I think B is the imposter. All right. B, the imposter. Um, Harry, what do you think the imposter is? Um, I think I was also going to go with B just because I think B is the the one that's actually kind of funny and clever. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to go with B. All right. B for Harry. And which for you, Jason? C for Jason. C for Jason. Uh, C is, in fact, the imposter. Uh, the other the other two legit taglines that we've got here, I'll just list those out because they're kind of, well, I don't know, they're kind of fun. I'll let you be the deciders of that. Uh, but we've got also, on August 18th, summer really begins. Okay. Uh, and then the, the, <laughs> other, the, the other one uh, that they 18th. had on file was uh, at 30,000 feet, snakes aren't the deadliest thing on this plane, which seems misleading that's, because what? the movie's that, about snakes on a plane. The deadliest but thing. they are. That's the whole conceit. Maybe there's some sort that's of also, large exactly. wolf also in the plane as well. That's also so long. That's such a long tagline. 
Well, I mean, if you look back at like pre 1950s, 1960s tag, they got novels written on those People things. People read more um, back then, Jason. Imagine if That's the true. tagline of no, Alien was like in space the alien isn't the scariest thing. <laughs> you, well, that's correct. Corporatism is. I Capitalism guess, is. Well, okay. I, I guess the other... Point, it's tough to the, make that because Alien is such a rich movie. It's difficult to oh like... God, true. It ends this, up having a good tagline. Is the scary thing the height? Does fear of like you're high up? Like what is the other scary thing that they're referencing? Do those people like turn on no each idea. other and like... Is no, it like they a, don't at all. They, no, they get not. eaten it's, by snakes and then they, they kill some snakes. snakes. Yeah. Yeah, they fight snakes on a plane. I thought, I thought maybe it was like it's a, a snake fight some guy in the penis. So wait, what? Uh, yeah, there was a there was a, a, there was a the, yeah. I I can't remember the user, so apologies if this is you and you you found our our podcast. Um, there was a letterbox review. It's like the second highest uh liked one, but it, it just goes like thirty minutes in snake on a boob, thirty three minutes in snake on a penis, or something like that. That's information <laughs> I appreciate. I've seen the TV edit of that where Samuel L. Jackson says, I've had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It's sick. It's very, very good. Um, It's what's also great is that uh, Jason came away with a point from that question. Uh, We've got four more questions to go. It is still anybody's game. It is still very much anybody's game. Uh, Next up, we have, uh, of course, Dodgeball, a true underdog story, which, of course, features the Globo Jim Purple Cobras. That is a dodgeball team captained by White Goodman, who is portrayed. He's the character portrayed by Ben Stiller. My question for you all is, how tall is Ben Stiller? Aaron? Uh, that's your <laughs> uh you know never... uh oh i feel like he's he's not a six footer i bet he uh five five nine all right aaron Strikes says five yeah. nine mid mid mid, yeah. mid height guy yeah sure uh harry what do you say guys is ben stiller a little freak can we make that designation mm. officially I, at this point i guess we'll find out been- I think he's been a romantic lead too many times to qualify for lead. Well, for, there are uh, some freak little status. freak romantic leads, I think. Uh, I'm going to go with five seven, co- five seven and a half, Cody. All right, five seven and a half says Harry. And finally, Jason, what is your your height guess for Mister Stiller? I got to round it out. I'm going to go five ten. Jason is going to go with five ten. The actual height. Of Ben Stiller, going off a, a few sources on the internet, but still, I'll say reportedly, allegedly, he is five foot seven, five ah. foot seven. Which, I, if memory serves, is an inch shorter than Peter Falk. I, I could be misremembering. No, but. I think Peter Falk was six foot six, like I said in that one episode. Oh, right? that's right. Yeah, the, the six foot nine Peter Falk. Yeah, I forgot right. he was seven foot two. I think he played center right uh, through college. Yeah, yeah, that's right for Georgetown. Um, shout out to Peter Falk, a, a, a straight up baller. Um, yeah, Harry was closest. Um, excellent guess from Harry. Uh, shout out to uh, short king, little freak Ben Stiller. Um, good stuff. Like Anyways, ben Stiller. I like Ben Stiller a lot. I, I apologies. A little freak is kind of an inside joke uh, between us. So it we mean no disrespect, Mister Stiller. Please come on the pod you know what why not uh for our third you're gonna say if ben stiller came on if he was like hey guys we want him to be on trilove we'd be like nah sorry ben we're booked i mean they're they're unsubstantiated and purely anecdotal but i've heard he's kind of a jerk i don't know uh just put that but then again i don't know every everybody's a jerk right is everybody a little freak at heart no i think that's that's what cobra verde is about right 
Yikes. Um, and, you know, we're not going to talk about Cobra Verde anymore. So I'm shutting this down. We're talking about snakes. We're talking about snakes now for a third of, of five snaky films. Uh, you know what? Uh, kind of uh, another kind of a stretcher. Let's talk about the 1986 film uh, starring Sylvester Stallone. It's called Cobra. Um, I know none of you have seen this except me, but bear with me here. This is, uh, if anything, it's a platform to get folks to watch Cobra and to get myself to rewatch it. Yeah, fellas, maybe we fellas watch this, but it's a movie in which Stallone plays the titular Lieutenant Marion Cobra Cabretti. Um, and here's a fact that might help the case for, uh, <laughs> for people to watch it. The body count for this movie going by IMDb trivia is 52, 52 bodies hitting the Jesus. floor. My question for you all. So based on everything you know about this movie, which again, is not a lot. My question for you all is how many of those bodies were killed at the hands of Sylvester Stallone's character, who again is named Cobra? Uh, Aaron, what's your guess? How many of 52 bodies were killed by Cobra? I mean, the the fun joke answer would be 52, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to stall by saying that Cobra Cabretti is a great fucking name. That's a classic. Pretty good. Pretty good. That was the first thing I was going to, is oh, it Miriam? Miriam Cabretti? Marion Cobra. Mar- Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. Lieutenant, oh, okay. Lieutenant Marion Cobretti. Marion Cabretti. I'm watching this movie immediately. Yeah, I've heard it's very good. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, 41. All right, Aaron is going to say 41. Yeah, I think I gave this a three and a like, and it's on it. That doesn't do it justice. Uh, it's... I, I, you know what? And I said it after Fast Nine. I just get, you know, post COVID world, you know, air quotes, post COVID world. I just get different things out of movies now. Cobra rules. Um, Harry, what's your guess for this I, this question again? Cody, I have to know. Does at any point he say, "I'm Lieutenant Marion Cabretti"? Oh no, he um. So the he hides the fact he only goes by Cobra, and I think it's um. Who is it? Somebody tells his love interest lady friend that his name is Marion, and like she brings it up, and and he gives like eh, what? Like he doesn't want every anybody to know his name is Marion. So it's he does not openly admit it. Um, but it it comes to light at some point. That's even better than I could have hoped for. Um, I'm gonna go. I don't know exactly what you mean. Like if it, if we're talking like the direct cause of death, but I'm gonna go with 48. I think. Sure. 48 um, bodies killed at the hands of, of Sylvester Stallone's character. Um, and let's see, Jason, what is your what is your guess for the count of bods killed by Cobra? I am going to make the bold assertion that uh, this Cobra doesn't have venom. Uh, I'm going to say 34 bodies and the rest are like an explosion by the bad guys or something. Dang. All right. Uh, reportedly the number of deaths Cobra is responsible for in Cobra is 41. Aaron, oh my right on the head. I should get extra credit for that, I think, but no, uh, the only way to verify this again is to, to watch the movie yourself. So um, maybe do that. If you're listening, Wink. I, I will do you say know how the other people die, Cody. Uh, only one way to find out. And that's by watching Cobra. Harry asked that uh, with like a certain delight in his voice. Like he, he just really, <laughs> Stimulated they get into for some, some reason jigsaw by the disc traps. Does anyone get bit on the penis by a snake? Well, you were I thinking of 2006 like, a snake on a plane. Snakes <laughs> on a plane. I was wondering how how like clear we were being about it because like Jason said, it's like if if an explosion goes off, but like is it it did Cabretti's plant the C four? Is that a, is that a kill? It's like in Commando when uh, Matrix drops that dude from the Warriors off of the cliff. It's like oh did, sure, did Matrix kill him or did gravity kill him? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Hey, that's not how yeah. that works. 
uh, eternal question. I am very excited, Cody, given your movies, like you watch movies and get different things out of movies differently. I'm very excited to know what you think post COVID of, excuse me, post vaccination, I guess of demolition, man, a movie you gave four stars and a like, which Cody I gave that four stars and a like. Maybe not oh, yeah, like, but the four stars. Yes. Oh, I and definitely did. As, I as did Demolition I. Man. I fucking yeah. love Demolition Man, I and I feel like if we watch that again, too long ago, didn't love it as much. Uh, I'm, I'm, it got watch it again. I think I gave it like a three, this or is three a, and a half recently. Ouch. Oh sure. I mean, this is like a weird wormhole to go go down, but like Demolition Man and like Speed, Streets of Fire, um, Johnny Mnemonic all occupy the Ooh. same sort of like space in my head. Like Johnny honestly, let's go. Set aside a day, watch those four. You're gonna have a pretty fucking good day. Um, Ooh, throw man. Cobra in there. Honestly, I think Cobra like matches the energy of of those in its own weird little freaky way. Little freaky way. I can't remember if Sylvester Stallone is a, a little freak or not. We can check the books on that. We got we got two more questions here. Uh, for question four, uh, the movie we have here is Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. Uh, an amazing film starring Jackie Chan that uh, most of us here saw at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the Jackie Chan Buster Keaton series of films they did recently. Uh, In October 2007, Jackie Chan was placed on the Entertainment Weekly list of Top 25 Awesome Action Heroes. At what uh, what place or, you know, what, what number was he slotted on that list? That's my question. So out of 25, what number did Jackie Chan end up at on that list, Aaron? Ooh, I remember uh, Googling something very similar uh, a while ago because I was looking up, like, I-, I remember thinking, like, why do I never see Jackie Chan on those lists? Or, like, why is it always, like, you know, Stallone or Schwarzenegger or whatever? I remember Googling it, and I remember I read a few different lists, and I remember there was one where he was nine. And I'm going to guess nine, and I remember being angry because he's definitely... He deserves higher than that. I'm going to go nine. I think it's nine. All right. Aaron's going to go nine. Harry, what are you going to go with? Yeah. I mean, like, just to be clear, it's like he's number one with a bullet, right? He's like, he's, like depending on what type of action. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, like, top five, like, at least. Yeah. Talking about like historically important and great action heroes, it's like Jackie Chan is like number one, two, three, four, and five. Um, I don't even think I'm right, but I'm just going to go with number one because I got to show up. Hey, that's fair. Uh, Harry says number one. And Jason, what is your guess? I'm going to say 13 because the things that I want never actually happen. And I want him to be number one. Hey, uh, pretty valid. Uh, Jackie Chan made number 15 on the awesome action heroes list of Entertainment Weekly from 2007. To help help characterize this list here, um, I'm not going to read the whole list, but just some notable uh, for better, for worse entries. Um, so numbers one and two were Bruce Willis and Sigourney Weaver, respectively. Wait, um, one and two? Yeah, it tells you the kind of list this was. Uh, I, however, Chow Yun-Fat came in at number seven, which is kind of mm. How kind is of this shock. art? Like, I, I like all three of those actors. Right. But and you also like Schwarzenegger, who came in just behind Chow Yun-Fat at number eight. Uh, Bruce so Lee, number 11. the thing that really gets to me is that, like, even if it's that kind of list, how do you put right. Sigourney Weaver and Bruce Willis above Arnold Schwarzenegger? Two great actors. None That's, of us are great. great oh, yeah. They're better actors right. than Arnold Schwarzenegger is. They're not better fucking action heroes than... Are, are you Wait. kidding me? Are, and part Schwarzenegger of Schwarzenegger and, like, Jackie Chan are, like... <laughs> Top, One and two, oh, top baby. three, yeah, I, right. And and part of what comes next is sort of like time and place, but like you know, Matt Damon's number twelve on this list, and everybody's oh, getting high off of Jesus. Eat it's, my whole 
Uh, and finally, Toshira Meifune, um, who can eat my hole, uh, comes in at number 25 he, on this list. Come on. Oh, ben, I guess he's not uh, as I'm much of an action star. Uh, let's that's, see. Ben, ben Affleck wrote this list, so that's a, uh, that makes more sense. Got to rip this makes me very – look, I need – oh, man. God, I'm now just well, in a bad. I'm just in a bad mood. I'm in a bad well, 20, mood. Twenty five is like the pity place. Is like, oh, we did. We, you're not really belonging on this list, but we're putting you on it anyway. That's a oh, you know what, you know what it might be actually. Rows. You know what it might be. Let me let me Google let me Google here because I might be mistaken. Uh, uh, Drunken Master Two, maybe maybe actually Bruce Willis and Sigourney Weaver in that film. Let me just look at the cast list I think here. So, right? I'm seeing, I, no, I'm actually seeing it's Jackie Chan who's the was Jackie Chan. It's Jackie Chan. Oh. I think Jackie Chan should probably. Someone should email in a correction to the New York Times. Yeah. Hey, didn't know if you you maybe thought that Bruce Willis was in Drunken Master Two. Well, uh, again, number number eight is just it. Ben Affleck in the film Daredevil. Well, I mean, bears here over individual. Oh, good times. Uh, hopefully this next one will be uh, will we, raise our spirits a little bit. Um, I'm sorry, number five. Can we, can we get yes? a, a recap of the points oh, so far? Oh, sure. A recap of <laughs> – well, of Talk course. Uh, so everybody's everybody's on the board. Um, we've got uh, Aaron and Harry with a point apiece and Jason um, blazing atop the leaderboard with two points. Uh, this is – Still very much anybody's game, uh, with particular emphasis on that, uh, for reasons that will become abundantly clear shortly. Uh, but finally, uh, movie number five, we've got Green Snake from the year 1993, uh, which is a new movie. Yeah, I paused that Harry <laughs> could, uh, could chime in as I knew he would, and appropriately so, because it's a movie that rules it, and it's a, a movie that only Harry and I have seen of the folks here, but for our purposes, that's totally fine. We're only going to be talking about Maggie Chung, who plays the titular green snake in that movie. So uh, here's here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read off four Maggie Chung films. And what each of y'all will need to do is rank them in order of your perception of them being best to worst reviewed. So in order of best to worst reviewed, to quantify that, we're going to go by tomato meter scores, courtesy of rottentomatoes.com forward slash. Um, so you'll get a point for each correctly slotted film. And again, though we have four total films, uh, films rather in the mix. So if you get the order perfectly correct, you'll get four points. If two of the films are slotted in the right places, you get two points, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so with that, um, I will now read the films, uh, the list of four films y'all are trying to rake from best to worst reviewed using tomato meter scores. And then I'm going to vamp a little afterwards. Y'all have time to think uh, about it a little bit. We've got 1985's Police Story. We've got 1988's As Tears Go By. We've got 1992's Super Cop, a.k.a. Police Story 3. And we've got 2000's In the Mood for Love. So again, best to worst reviewed going by tomato meter scores. And while you're doing that, I'll just reiterate for the folks at home, if you're just joining us or if you scrubbed through the audio file on your podcast playing device and landed uh, upon this moment, it should be known you're in the noties. This is Snake Love, a Cobra podcast. Jason is in the lead with two points. Harry and Aaron are trailing just behind with one point apiece. And uh, this is a, a game-changing question. This is this is a biggie here. Um, a possible zero to four points can be gained from this question for any one of our participants. Um, how are we doing, gentlemen? I, I will pointedly uh, ask best, Aaron best if he's to ready. Worst, correct. Best, best to, to worst. worst. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. 
All right. I think we're good. So yeah. read them off. Um, uh, maybe go at like three quarters speed, just so I yeah. can I can write down and, and adjudicate a, a point total. But whenever okay. you're ready, I I will take your your guess. Okay. Uh, I really tried to rack my brain because I I thought there must be some sort of trick. Maybe maybe in the mood for love, just didn't uh, two thousand. Maybe it didn't have a ton of reviews. I got to imagine that's like a hundred percent or high nineties. But maybe there's like six reviews. I don't know. I'm going to go, I think the best reviewed is in the mood for love. Uh, I'm then going to go uh, police story. And then as tears go by, which I'm saying and maybe regretting, because that also probably only has a few. As tears go by is third, and then super cop is fourth. Gotcha. Okay. I've got, I've got those down. Um, they are etched in concrete. Moving along. To Harry, Harry, what is your guess for the order of best to worst? Yeah, thanks, Cody. Um, I had a very similar thought process to Aaron, except that I believe that In the Mood for Love is actually sort of a movie that was subject to critical reappraisal. I don't know that it was as sort of celebrated in its time. Maybe I'm totally talking out my own ass here, but I seem to remember going online once and seeing some reviews that were like, passing i think like didn't ebert give it like a three or something i don't know anyway um i overthought this obviously so i'm gonna go police story first and then um in the mood for love second so police story first then in the mood for love um then i'm gonna go with police story three super cop um and i think my lowest is gonna be as tears go by gotcha gotcha okay excellent uh those are also etched in concrete and now we we arrive at jason jason lay it on me daddy-o one in the mood for love two police story three super cop four as tears go by roger dodger okay yep yeah yeah no no embellishments you love a a, a blunt king Big chat energy um, but, choosing the really obvious ones too jason i it'll be really good when you get four points here so, um, thank you, gentlemen, um, for your for your guesses. This was uh, a lovely game. I had a lot of fun moderating this. The correct order of best to worst reviewed Maggie Chung films using tomato meter scores as the metric is as follows: the highest ranked started. We're starting with the highest ranked Maggie Chung film using tomato meter scores with ninety six percent. Super Cop, aka Police f- Story Three. <laughs> Police I story. Movie, I mean, that's what it deserves. Cop. You know, we it all agree. Yeah, I forgot she was in that movie. To be honest, I thought it was going to be like a sixty-five. Yeah. I don't know Gotta why, but it's because it's uh, clearly worse than the rest of these movies by a pretty considerable margin. As, yeah, it's better it is. Than as tears go by. Big, big old curveball. Um, coming in at second with ninety-three percent, we've got Police Story. Uh, coming in at third with 91%, we have In the Mood for Love and Bringing Up the Rear. As Tears Go By with 85%, uh, if my tabulations are correct, Aaron and Harry got a point apiece from that. Jason correctly slotted Police Story and As Tears Go By, which gave him uh, all he had to do was get one point. So he he came away with two points from that question. So the final uh, scores across the board here, if my math is correct, Aaron two, Harry two, Jason four. This has been Snake Love. Thanks for playing gentlemen no thank you cody thank you cody narbus 
Johnson for awarding me so many points. That is what uh, the second in a month that have that have uh, stolen the crown. Um, really I think proud it's of the second period you've won, right? I think that's uh, the maybe ever. Yeah, won. maybe ever. Yeah. But you know, we all start somewhere. Uh, we we stay hungry. We devour. Uh, this has been another edition of Cody's Noties at the end of an episode of Try Love. It is our literal roundtable podcast. Uh, you can find the movies that we um, have been talking about on most places on the internet uh, if you didn't catch them at the Trilon. But if you don't want to get that FOMO, if you want to see it at the Trilon next time, well, first find yourself in Minneapolis, then find yourself at the Trilon Cinema in South Minneapolis. Uh, you can find out what they're going to be playing as part of the rest of the Herzog series and as a number of other series that are already planned out through next spring. Some really wonderful stuff on the horizon at trilon.org. You can pre-order tickets. Go figure. You can buy merch. Go figure. You can see us at the Trilon most weekends, um, at least one of us. But for right now, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find me, little old me, at Nintendoofus. I don't know why you keep saying little old you, Jason. Um, especially Jason's according the, to little freak vote. He's trying to he's trying to get one for himself. Oh, that rat fink bastard. Pretty smart. Um shout listen, out listen, to the actually yes. the move doing that, you think I'm now more of a rat fink bastard than you did before, right? So I am well on my way. The wheels are so spinning. Echo, little freak. Yeah, he's right. Damn it, he got us. <sighs> listen, uh shout out to to Cobra the Sylvester Stallone film easily, easily rentable. I, I think it's on all major like renting platforms streaming. I'm not so sure. Um, but also I have the, the Blu-ray if anybody um, wants to, to watch it with physical media, the same cannot be said for green snake, which I know Harry and I watched it when it was on Amazon as part of like, uh, I think like Fandor, like subscribing to Fandor through Amazon, you like pay an extra couple bucks a month. And it was there briefly. It is not there anymore. Listen, uh, uh, Johnny Criterion, um, uh, Albert Kino Lorber, if you're listening, like it's really cool that the Irishman has a physical release so soon, but just like Jesus Christ, uh, give Green Snake a release. This is, I, I'm, I, I'm going to be on your ass about this, all your asses. Um, the people need it. I've been Cody Narvis, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. To all my fans, I must again apologize for another loss. I was undone by the classic trap of overthinking, much like the titular character Cobra Verde, who I think we can all agree had the tragic flaw of overthinking. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Harry. Uh, you should definitely see Green Snake. It rocks. Maggie Chung wiggles her butt like a snake. Um, it's the best. It's a great movie. I'm going to stop talking. I'd like to disavow everything. No. Uh, my name is uh, Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at Arby, please. Congratulations to Jason on his well-earned win today in the trivia section. You must keep going west. Four years on horseback and ten on foot. And after that, there are high mountains. They rise higher and higher right over the clouds. And then, above the clouds, then you find the snow. Oh